If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, chances are you've been to a variety of churches. And if you've been to more than one church, I would imagine at some point in your journey, you found yourself asking the question, why do they do it that way? God in his infinite wisdom has called all types of people together from all walks of life to put their faith in his son Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. This is the gospel. And in doing so, he forms one universal body. We call this the body of Christ, the universal church. And within that universal church, we see all of these individual expressions of local churches, of which Old North Church is one. And as you see a wide variety of people, of places, of expressions, I'm sure at times you ask yourself the question, just as I have, well, I wonder why they do it that way. Some churches, all churches, have strengths, have weaknesses. If you look across the diversity of churches, unfortunately, you will see a wide diversity of beliefs. If you look across the diversity of churches, you will see, in a healthy way, a wide diversity of expression. Every church is different. But in some ways, in certain ways, we believe that every church should be the same. Here at Old North, we've had some core convictions about the nature of church, about our relationship to each other, and particularly what our relationship to each other and to God looks like on a Sunday morning when we come together to worship. These convictions long precede me. They've been here for quite some time. They are convictions that are vital to an understanding of what it means to be a healthy church that worships together. And they are found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. So I want to ask you to grab your Bible, open with me to Colossians chapter 3. It's found on page 984 of that Pew Bible. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we're working through in a series in the book of Colossians that we're calling Supremacy. If you're here for the first time today, welcome. And you get to learn a little bit about what Old North Church is about through the scriptures this morning. Colossians chapter 3, on page 984, I encourage you to open and to find it and to stay there for the next number of minutes together. Are you there? Let me remind you of where we are in this book. The Apostle Paul is teaching Christians what their new life in Jesus Christ looks like. He talks about them dying to the old self and being raised again to new life, putting off certain behaviors and putting on certain godly behaviors. And now he concludes the section with this. In verse 15 he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
So we remind ourselves as we read this very short passage that my temptation, and I'm sure your temptation, or for some of us anyway, is to read this and immediately apply it to me individually. Let the peace of Christ, yes, I need peace in my life. Let the word of Christ, yes, I read my Bible. Let the things that I do, yes, I do a number of things personally throughout the days, weeks, and months. But remember, I want to push back a little bit. Remember, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Colossae. He's writing to a church, a local church of people. And as such, he's telling them some of the core convictions that they should have as they worship together. And these are core convictions that we have as well. He points three of them out, corresponding with the three verses. And the first one is this. We want our church family to be governed by peace. Look at it with me. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. There's a wonderful individual and corporate nature here that I want you to notice. Peace is something that happens in your heart is an expression that he uses. And yet, it is not something that is just individual in nature. It is something that happens within a larger body of people. And he makes it a point to highlight this corporate, interpersonal nature of peace because it's important to our understanding of faithfulness to Jesus. How you relate to one another is an indication of faithfulness to Jesus. Now, in the previous section, we see that he's reminding us, telling us, put off certain things, put on certain things. And in verse 14, he says, as sort of a big overarching idea, above all of these things I've told you to put on, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We know that love is an outward action that's directed toward other people. Peace is the absence of conflict or stress and peace is one of the many things that occurs when you have an environment of loving action toward each other. Now, unfortunately, if you've been around a church for any amount of time, any church for any amount of time, you will know that we don't necessarily have the best track record for keeping unity and peace. I think of the story of the man who was stranded on the desert island in the Pacific for years. And one day, a boat came sailing across the horizon line into view. And as all of us would do, if we were stranded on an island, we'd do whatever we can to get the attention of that boat. So cutting down tree branches and lighting them on fire and pillars of smoke going up in the air and standing on the beach, waving as, as radically as he can to try to get the attention of this captain from a distance. And sure enough, he succeeded. And as the boat sailed near to the island, a sailor got off the boat and came ashore and began to speak with the stranded man. And after a while, the rescuing sailor asked the castaway, what are those three huts that you've built over there? And the castaway said, well, the first one is my house. I've built it as a shelter for myself. And what about the second? The sailor asked. 
Well, I've built that for my church, and that's where I worship God on Sundays. And the third, the sailor asked. And at that, the castaway got quiet and began to speak under his breath and said, well, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) When we tend not to like something, it's easy to head down the road to the next place. But that is a completely foreign concept to the New Testament church. Instead of just heading down the road to the next place, there was no other place to go. They were to exercise love and peace and humility to one another. And I just have to say, we would do well in the Western world to begin to readopt and engage those types of practices that they necessarily had to adopt in the first century because there was no other place to go. Now, I say that with the recognition And the very real possibility that in our lifetime, perhaps, there's not going to be such wide variety of options of families, of churches. We need each other. And so, in that need, we pursue peace. Now, notice how he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This sense of ruling is the sense of one who governs or officiates. We don't often think of peace when we think of what constitutes the final arbiter of our relationships with one another. We think that our relationships are based on desires, they're based on common goals, they're based on preferences, they're based on a wide variety of things. But rarely what dictates in the middle of our relationship which way we turn, rarely do we think of peace. Perhaps a sports analogy might be helpful. I'm a sports fan of a wide number of sports, and I like to follow English soccer. So I follow Chelsea Football Club, which is a football club from London, and I rarely have the opportunity to sit down and watch a match, but yesterday I had an opportunity to sit down and watch part of their match, and they've played terribly. They've been terrible this year overall. Now, in any soccer match, there are multiple moments in that match when a bounding ball is going through the center of the field and two players, one from each opposing team, charge toward that ball as fast as they can. They both have a desire for the ball. They both have a goal of getting it. And they're willing almost to do anything to see, to have their goal accomplished. And often what happens upon reaching the ball is that a physical confrontation occurs, resulting in a foul. And the person who decides what happens after the foul is the referee. He governs the interactions between the two players. He is the arbiter in these moments of conflict. When Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule, he is saying... In your interactions with each other, let the dominating decision maker be peace between you. Let that decide which way you will go as a family of Christ. 
Now, practically, that does not mean that we can't ever disagree with each other, and it doesn't mean that we can't even express that disagreement in certain healthy types of ways. But what it does mean is that out of love, we continue as a family of believers to show deference to each other with a posture of humility. It's called the peace of Christ because Christ is the one who put you at peace with God himself through his sacrifice and through faith. And so as a result, we extend and pursue peace with each other. We see that part of the reason for this peace, as the text says, is that God has called us into one body. As I said in a moment ago in my introduction, certainly we could say, broadly speaking, the universal church is one body. But practically speaking, on the ground, day in and day out, God calls us to a local church. And if you're here today, maybe you're here visiting and this wouldn't necessarily apply to you if you're in from out of town. But if you're here today and you're here with any level of consistency, we might say that God has called you to this local church. And as a result, we commit to one another to have Christ lived out in this body in harmony and unity and peace. We want our church to be governed by peace. Secondly, if you look with me at verse 16, we see that here, and we want our church worship to be governed by the word. He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the command for us as a community is to let the word of Christ, his words, we take that to mean the Bible, to let that dwell, to reside here, to be the central feature of what we do. And he gives us really three ways that we're called to let the word of Christ dwell among us. The first two are very obvious, teaching and admonishing. Now there's subtle difference between teaching and admonishing. We might describe it this way. Teaching is the imparting of skills or knowledge. Admonishing would be instruction or warning, particularly with regard to behavior. And so there's a sense in which there's a positive teaching and also a warning. And so that would make sense then what we do on Sundays together when we gather is we read the word, the scriptures together. It's why when we came to church today, Lori gave us uh, a call to worship from the Psalms. When I prayed in my pastoral prayer a moment, a moment ago, I referenced Isaiah 25 When we stand up on Sunday and preach, whether it's me or somebody else, we devote 30 to 40 minutes every single Sunday to sitting under teaching from the Word. When you go back to Sunday school, when our kids go to Sunday school and there's a wana, the Word is dwelling among us because this is pleasing to God. Now, A third way that Paul talks about this word dwelling among us, beyond teaching and admonishing, which, by the way, has very encouraging connotations sometimes, 
and hard connotations sometimes. I know the desire for all of us to come into church on Sunday is to walk out of here feeling fantastic. And a lot of times we do, right? But sometimes admonishing or warning doesn't feel so good, does it? But it's healthy in letting the word dwell among us. But the third way that he talks about here, that the word dwells among us, is through singing. Now there's a legitimate question that needs to be asked of the text here if you're reading it carefully. And I want to highlight it just to let you in a little bit to some of the thoughts that have been going through my mind this week. When singing is mentioned in verse 16, is it that is it describing how we teach and admonish each other? Or is it describing how the word dwells among us? If it's the first, we might say something like, teach and admonish one another by singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. If it's the second, describing a way that the word dwells among us, it's a sequence. Like, let the word of Christ dwell among you, and the way that you do that is teaching, admonishing, and singing. The difference is subtle. Scholars are divided on the issue. I tend to lead, lean toward the latter. I think singing is one of the ways that the word dwells among us because throughout the New Testament, we don't see churches that gather together just to sing, do we? Preaching and teaching is a common and central point of their gatherings. So I think we can take singing here as one of the different ways God's word dwells among us, and it's an important way. Because music is incredibly powerful, isn't it? Music has the ability to communicate things that verbal discourse simply cannot do. In fact, famous rock star Jimi Hendrix made a statement some years ago that every parent should be concerned with, and it taps into the sort of powerful nature of music. He said this, he said, music is a spiritual thing of its own. You can hypnotize people with music. And when you get them at their weakest point, you can preach into the subconscious mind what we want to say. Now, I don't know if I agree with him. I'm sure I don't completely. But the power of music in both positive and negative ways, is something that he understands well. And research has displayed this, both in secular music and in church music. And one of the points that is conveyed is that what is said in the music really does matter. If music as an art form and an emotional vehicle to communicate something uh, is real, then what is communicated really does matter. Now, when we talk about music in the church, very often we talk about style, don't we? We talk about contemporary or traditional or blended. 
Sometimes we talk about songwriters or artists that we like, particularly with the expanse of Christian radio. So we talk about Hillsong or the Gettys or Chris Tomlin. We talk about the Gaithers or Michael W. Smith or go way back to Fanny Crosby and Isaac Watts and even Martin Luther. And we talk about music in these types of terms, but they're all secondary to what is really happening when we sing together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, why do Christians sing when they are together? I mean, have you even thought about that? Where else in society do you get together with a thousand other people and sing? That's weird. I mean, maybe like a college football game, you'll sing the fight song or something like that. But no other place in our culture or really cultures throughout history have there been such a consistent gathering of people singing. Bonhoeffer says, why do Christians sing when they're together? The reason is quite simply because in singing together, it's possible for them to speak and pray the same word at the same time. In other words, because here they can unite in the word. Thus, music is completely the servant of the word. And Paul says... When you gather together to sing, you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This wide breadth to it, doesn't it? Psalms would typically refer to those 150 psalms of the Old Testament. Hymns do not simply refer to organ hymns in a select 100 or 200 year period of time. I'm sorry to break it to you. Hymns actually refers to any music that's commonly known that is sung to and in praise of God. Spiritual songs can be music with or without words that are prompted by the Holy Spirit. And so you can see in that there's a wide breadth of the things that we like to talk about style, pianos or guitars or organs or whatever it might be. But here in this passage, one of the only two passages in the New Testament that talks about Christians singing together, we see that the real primary importance of our singing is how the word dwells among us. So let me give you an encouragement. The things that we sing shape us as a church family. If you're here today and you don't like the music, I know there's probably only like two of you, but if you don't like the music, then my encouragement to you would be focus on the things that we are singing to God in worship of him and to each other in proclamation. If you're here today and you're kind of like, yeah, the music's fine. My encouragement to you would be, remember the things that we are singing together. Focus on the proclamation and the worship to God and the proclamation to each other. And if you are here and you love the music, maybe you're like me and you like a wide variety of music, and uh, whether it's Chris or Nathan or Lori or whoever's leading us and whatever the style is, you're going to be happy. Remember to focus on the things that we're saying and singing because the content really does matter. And as I said to the church a couple weeks ago, 
I firmly believe, because I've seen this in my own life, I've seen it in the lives of many others, you can grow in the worship of God outside of your chosen musical preference. But the only way you're going to do that is by focusing on the content of what you sing. (laughs) There's not another way. And so if you're in that place, I would encourage you to do just that. And we see again that all of our disposition in this, verse 16, we sing with thankfulness to God. So finally, verse 17 brings us to sort of the conclusion of this section, thematic conclusion of a large section of Colossians. We've said up to this point that we want our church family to be governed by peace. We want our church worship to be governed by the word. And now finally in verse 17, we see that we want our lives to be governed by the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything you do, do it in his name. What is in a name? Why is that important? To act in the name of the Lord means simply to let his person and his works and his ways govern your life choices. And in doing so, you accurately represent this one who has been united with you in faith. Now, I want you to notice with me there are two themes that are repeated throughout this text and they bear out really what it means to let your lives be governed by the person of Christ. Number one, you'll see with me in verse 15, let the peace of Christ. Verse 16, let the word of Christ. Verse 17, let the, in the name, do these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Repeated again and again is that the, for Christians, the person of Jesus is the dominating reality of our actions and interactions. This is a key implication of what it means to put off the old self and put on the new self. This is a key implication of what it means to be united to him. Our whole spiritual life has changed. And then necessarily our whole physical life changes. And so whatever we do, we seek to have him govern our thoughts, our words, and our decisions. You might remember a number of weeks ago, if you've been reading along in Colossians or studying it, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we see a theme verse for this book. And it is a, it's given in resounding form here today. It says this. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Walking in Christ, chapter 2, verse 6, means whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in his name, verse three seventeen. To walk in him means that you allow his person to dominate your reality. Now, I understand that the all-encompassing nature of that is a bit daunting, isn't it? I mean, really. Nick, are you just giving spiritual platitudes up here? Or is there really a way for me to do something in the name of Christ 
when I'm putting my kids to bed or when I'm eating dinner or when I'm driving in my car or whatever it might be. The all-encompassing nature seems daunting or maybe trivial depending upon where you're coming from. But the more you grow in your faith in Jesus, the more you see that he is indeed all-encompassing in scope. He doesn't sit idly by on the sidelines watching you live your life. He is actively involved in the middle of your life. And so we go through our days and we rely on him who has saved us and brought us back into a relationship with God. We rely on him and him alone. There are so many ways in which we go about our lives and the things that influence us, but we say to ourselves and we remind ourselves that I've been united to this eternal one. And if he is eternal and ever-sustaining the universe, how much does he care about me in my individual situations? This is what it means to say that the old is gone and the new has come. This is what it means when we see in the early part of chapter 3, it reminds us to set your minds on things above. Set your actions on the things above. Seek the things above where Christ is. We want to be in step with that dominating reality. That's one theme. The second repetitive theme is this. The theme of thanksgiving. Chapter 2, verse 6, I read it just a moment ago. It says, walk in this way, abounding in thanksgiving. Chapter 3.15 of today's text, let the peace of Christ rule and be thankful. Chapter 3.16, let the word dwell with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do, do it giving thanks to God. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Now I say this sincerely. I hope that you are thankful to God for what he's done in your life. And I hope that you are thankful to be part of this church. Remember, this is written to churches. I hope that you are thankful that he has called you into one body with these people around you. Now, I'm the new guy. (laughs) And I can tell you, as a person who knows a lot of pastors and a lot of churches, I'm so thankful to be part of this church, to have the opportunity to do life with you, to explore the things of God with you, to pursue faithfulness to God with you. Are you thankful for these people around you? Not just for the building or the organization or the, or the service itself, but for the people that make up this church. Because what we see in this text is that thankfulness is a repeated disposition of people who are faithful. Now, for some of us, Thanksgiving comes easy. For others of us, not so easy. But here, this reoccurring description of a faithful life has Thanksgiving as its disposition. 
And that's a challenge for some of us. Let me conclude this way. At the bottom of many of his musical manuscripts, the great organist and composer Johann Sebastian Bach often wrote the letters I-N-D-N-J-C. Those letters stood for the Latin phrase in nomine domini nostri Jesu Christi, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They did not appear on Bach's manuscripts by accident or without purpose because Johann Sebastian Bach put them there for a reason. He was considered a genius in the field of music. But Bach recognized the one true genius. Known for his extraordinary talent, Bach realized the source of all human talent. Praised for his musical gifts, Bach was aware of the primary giver of all gifts. He could affirm the New Testament writer James that says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. And so at the bottom of his manuscripts, he wrote, I-N-D, N-J-C. Most of us will never compose a Bach-like musical manuscript. Most of us will never compose music, period. But each day, our lives compose a living manuscript of sorts. Each day, we have opportunities to use God-given time, talents, skills, gifts, and treasures, and we write notes which collectively compose the songs that others hear when we interact with them. Each day we make a kind of music with our lives, composing and performing the measures, verses, and stanzas which combine to form a living symphony of who we are and what we're about. And so as you compose yours, the message of Colossians 3, 15 to 17, is as an individual and as a church family, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise. You are the giver of so many good gifts, chiefly displayed in your Son. Lord, help us to let peace rule among us in a way that's pleasing to you. Help us let the word dwell among us in teaching and admonishing and singing. Lord, break down those ways, those barriers in our hearts and in our minds that keep us from these things. Foster in us a greater sense of commitment to you and to each other, we pray. And in that, in all the things that we do and that we say, Father, we ask that the dominating reality of your son Jesus would be in mind. We pray these things together in his name. Amen.